Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order was a surprise hit when it dropped in November of 2019. Coming from Respawn, the same team that dropped Apex Legends out of nowhere just a few months before in February of 2019, this release solidified them as one of the top developers in the industry. Not only were they a phenomenally talented studio that was able to create a battle royale to take on the likes of Fortnite and PUBG at the time since Warzone hadn't launched, but they also apparently could do third-person action-adventure games in licensed worlds as iconic as Star Wars. That's ridiculous. Not many teams can do one of those things very well, but Respawn apparently can do both. They're like the try-hard kid in high school that just wouldn't calm down. <laughs> That's Respawn. They're just good at everything and they make everybody else look stupid. <laughs> of course, I played the game back in the day when it first launched in November of 2019. My experience was extremely buggy, but despite that, I had a really good time. I played on an Xbox One and had all sorts of weird bugs where the floor wouldn't load, AI would glitch out and just stand there, along with a bunch of other soft locks. However, apparently I was in the minority. A lot of people didn't report the same types of bugs and I suppose I just got really unlucky. That being said, I really enjoyed the game back then, but I never really dove deep into its intricacies because I never did a critique of the game. And with the sequel coming out in just about a week, I figured what better time is there to revisit this game so that we can establish what it does well and what they could improve upon in this sequel, which we're getting very very soon. I'm not trying to be like a Debbie Downer, but there's a lot of issues with Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. A lot of things that stand out as things that could be improved or tweaked in a sequel, many of which people are already aware of and others that I want to deep dive a little bit into and perhaps are more nitpicky. As of the time of recording this video about two weeks before the game comes out, I don't know much about it. I don't have a review code as of right now. I have not touched the game. I've only seen what's been shown off in trailers and what's been described by like IGN at preview events. That being said, it looks like they're making a lot of improvements and a lot of the things that I'm going to bring up today are being addressed, but some other things are not specifically that horrible running animation. It's so bad. Looks like he has a baseball bat up his butt. But with that said, let's just jump right into it. No sponsor or anything today, but if you do enjoy the video, like it and subscribe and ring the bell so that you get notified of new reviews and critiques that go up the moment that they do. Oh, and also just so you know, if you are a member of my live stream channel, just look up Luke Stevens live in the search bar, you can actually get access to videos, reviews, critiques like this up to a week before everybody else sees it. So you could have seen this days and days ago just by being a member over there. In addition to all of the other perks like the badge and chat and the emotes and all that good stuff. So again, check out the stream, Luke Stevens Live in the search bar or just head to the link in the description box below and join that way. But with that said, let's get into it. Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order probably has one of my favorite opening sequences of any game in the last five years. And I'm not kidding about that. I love this. It's clear that they put a lot of effort into this introduction with the ships being scrapped in the distance in addition to the high quality animations, sound design, and the amazing graphical fidelity all being presented front and center. And besides Cal running like he just had a colonoscopy from the moment that you take control of him, everything looks really, really good. It was in these opening sections that I immediately realized that Respawn was taking a lot of inspiration from Naughty Dog, specifically Uncharted 2. There's a lot of direct similes and things that they do all throughout here that we're going to get to in a second, which make it clear they took a lot of inspiration from that game, which is weird because Fallen Order really is not very much like Uncharted 2 at all in its structure, at least after this first hour or so. But again, we'll get to that. The game changes 
a lot from the first hour to the second. And it's one of my biggest problems with it. As I mentioned, the world building is tremendous in this opening bit. All of the narrative beats hit well, and it's honestly haunting to see all of these majestic ships scrapped for the Empire's benefit in the distance. This sequence also sets the tone for this game as being a lean, grounded, narrative title in a way that directly appeals to somebody like me. I love these kinds of games. And there are multiple times where I found myself just standing in place and taking all of this in. It's gorgeously well realized and seeing the wing of this massive ship separated was awesome. I love these large scale, big scope set pieces. I think they're so cool and I love it when these things are put front and center. Free climbing is also introduced a la Uncharted. And while it's very simplistic, I still had fun with it in small doses. So while it does get old, especially in the later levels with all of the Wookiees about, as for right now, I think it's fine. And to be fair, this is a problem that plagues Uncharted games too. They introduce fun and simplistic systems like free climbing and then overuse them to the point where they get boring. Unfortunately, in Fallen Order, a lot of the time it feels like it's just meant to pad out gameplay time in levels that need more gameplay. But we'll get to more of that later. Characters discuss the Jedi in the past tense constantly in this opening sequence, which also establishes time frame for those who are not familiar with the lore to a deep extent. All the player really needs to know is that the Jedi are gone and in hiding. That's what's important to note, and that's why they constantly bring it up. And that's what makes the first use of the Force by Cal in the game a real oh moment. And honestly, it works really, really well. At the core of every great story is conflict. And in this game, from the very first moment you boot in, you see the conflict between the workers who are dismantling all of these majestic ships, and then the representatives of the Empire that are forcing them to do all of this, sometimes against their will, and sometimes just because they don't have a good alternative. We also see the conflict with the Jedi, where they are in hiding, and then we find out that Cal seems to have some of those same abilities as the Jedi. Maybe he's not a Jedi himself, at least not yet, but at the very least, he seems to have a deeper understanding of the Force than he'd care to admit publicly. And this is really important. Stories, not just in video games, but everywhere, have to have conflict sprinkled all throughout to keep things interesting. A story without conflict is not really a story. It's just a series of events. But when you have conflict between multiple characters, their motivations conflicting, all of this, it actually creates an interesting experience for the viewer, which is why we enjoy watching conflict so much. And once again, it reestablishes for me that I really, really appreciate the effort they put into this opening sequence. Unfortunately, it doesn't really keep up, but again, we'll get there. What follows the first use of the Force is this trippy dream sequence on the train that I also find super, super cool. I love these trippy set pieces where things are swapped in and out like this. I think it's just cool. It was badass when PT did it back in 2014, and it's awesome here too. I mean, once again, they're just doing everything that I love. You can imagine me playing this game for the first time and just being like, oh my God, I love everything about this, which is honestly how I felt. It doesn't stay like that though. Our introduction to the antagonists of this game falls flat almost immediately. These characters don't come off as particularly interesting and they seem to be motivated simply by being bad or by trusting in the dark side of the force. Though to play devil's advocate, it is awful difficult to introduce a villain where it doesn't just feel like this person's bad because they're bad. Nuance can be painfully hard to come by nowadays. Thankfully, later in the game, we get some of this nuance when we find out more about the villains. But until then, we're left with these big baddies with red lightsabers just seeming like bad people who are bad people because they like being bad people. Though once again, to be fair, in Star Wars, this is 
quite common. Not a lot of people really think through the motivations of villains, especially in this franchise, as we've seen with the latest trilogy. <laughs> so you know what? Maybe this was like a big brain 4D chess move and they were actually like, oh, we're going to just lean into what they've been doing with the films. I doubt it. I think it's just that they rushed the introduction to these villains and that that's that. But Anyway, moving on. The following sequence on this long train once again reinforces the impression that Uncharted and specifically Uncharted 2 served as a major inspiration for this game's introduction. When you compare the actual movements and what you're doing in this sequence versus the famous train sequence in Uncharted 2, I think it's pretty clear that this is a fair comparison to make. And to be clear, I'm not saying this is a bad thing that they took inspiration from the train sequence in Uncharted 2. I think Uncharted 2 is great. It has lots of problems. If you want to hear my extended thoughts, I did an eight hour critique of that whole series go check it out and honestly this one feels different enough so i'm not going to complain about it being eerily similar to this other game like no there are two sequences on trains where you push up through them and then they start to collapse and you climb through them as they collapse it's really not that novel of an idea but it's still cool to see them taking inspiration from one of the most groundbreaking narrative games of all time as far as i'm concerned at the end of the sequence we get to fight the aforementioned batty the second sister and i really liked this sequence even though i know a lot of people hated this yes it is technically impossible to win this fight she will always win and it doesn't matter how well you play whether you're an expert in this game's combat or not you will lose. And while that may seem to beg the question, why is this even here if it's impossible to succeed? I think it's here for an entirely different purpose. You fight the second sister here because you're supposed to feel powerless. This is one of those moments where the developers want you to feel just like Cal, the main character. They want you to feel the same way and whisper to yourself, how the hell am I gonna take her down? That way, when the time does come, you'll be all the more proud of yourself for overcoming this difficulty. It's the exact same reason why From Software introduced Elden Ring with that weird spider dude. While you can technically beat him, it's extremely difficult to do on your first and only try with the game. Again, especially the first time you're trying the game. It's an encounter that's meant to humble you. And that's why I actually think this fight with the second sister is a good inclusion, not a bad one. You're going to fight her here and get your ass kicked. And when you encounter her later in the game, once again, you're going to do a little bit better. And then at the final encounter with her at the very end of the title, when you finally defeat her, you're going to feel an overwhelming sense of accomplishment because you overcame the difficulty that you struggled with so many hours before. After this, we're taken to what I would call the tutorial plan. Planet. Here we'll meet our little robot companion BD1, we'll learn how to navigate levels, the satellite checkpoint system that's similar to the Sites of Grace in Elden Ring or any other comparable locations or items in the Soulsborne franchises, and we'll get familiarized with the Metroidvania style of gameplay exploration and the combat. If you're not familiar with the term Metroidvania or if you've heard it a ton and you're not really sure what it means, it basically has to do with a very particular way of designing levels in video games. As defined on Wikipedia, Metroidvania games are a subgenre of action adventure games and or platformers focused on guided non-linearity and utility gated exploration and progression. In other words, you'll be going through a level and you'll reach a gate that requires, say, a key that you don't have yet. And as you continue through the game, going through different levels, you will eventually get that key, meaning that you can now go back to that level that you had to leave before and get access to that doorway or hallway, whatever it is that you couldn't get into 
when you were there the first time. This of course started with the Metroid games, but it's been implemented in all sorts of video games. Everything from the From Software titles that you're all familiar with, to even God of War 2018, they all use Metroidvania inspired mechanics and systems to navigate the player passively through levels and the world that they give you. In this game, it usually takes the form of certain abilities that you need to unlock later in the game by progressing through the story. For example, you might need a double jump, and until you get the double jump, you can't get to that area. So you have to leave, continue on a different path, and eventually once you get that ability, you can come back, finally jump up that ledge, and figure out what's behind there. Some people do find this annoying because they have to backtrack constantly, or they might have to continually revisit levels they already completed and cleared in order to see if they can get somewhere new now that they have new abilities but other people love it because they get to revisit areas they were already at and experience them anew I don't think there's a right answer here. It just depends on what you like and what you dislike. And if you don't like this, I don't blame you. I tend to find it more interesting because it gives me a reason to re-explore with a fresh perspective places I've already been, but again, to each their own. To look at a couple of specific examples, let's take this one where you can't jump up onto this ledge until you unlock the double jump later in the game. What this means is that after you first discover this ledge and try to get up it by yourself, you will have to make a mental note to return here later after you've gotten some ability that allows you to get up over this ledge, which in terms of gameplay time is a good seven to 10 hours later, depending on how much side content you've completed. I think this is why some people really hate Metroidvania style world design and level design, because they have to keep track of these things and be like, oh, remember that ledge? I couldn't quite get up. Well, now I have a double jump. I'll go try it again. And then they have to figure out where they were when that happened. And they have to backtrack until they discover it. And with the total lack of a fast travel system in this game, it can be very, very tedious to do that. And I totally understand it. Following in this same vein, this example right here is a crate that allows you to upgrade the maximum number of stims that you can use. You see it very early on in the game, but you can't actually get here until pretty close to three quarters of the way through the entire game. If you remember to return here, you will get to encounter multiple mini bosses, new levels, and tons of extra content that's totally optional. And when you do open the chest and you get access to that extra stim, you really feel as though you've accomplished something. You got to this ledge that seemed so far out of reach, literally, simply by being resourceful. Now, speaking of these unlocks and what they allow you to do, Cal does have a handful of things that he gains in terms of abilities over the course of the title, because he's basically rediscovering all of the things that his master taught him how to do when he was a child that he sort of suppressed in his mind. Of course, early on, you get access to a lightsaber, the main weapon for combat that you'll use throughout the entire campaign. You'll also unlock the slow force ability, which allows you to slow things down, which helps for big scary bosses or small enemies that move chaotically. This is also used in puzzles to freeze certain objects in order for you to move or counter them. It's a very versatile ability that's used all over the place. You'll also unlock wall run, which just allows you to, well, wall run. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty simple. You'll also unlock an underwater rebreather, which allows you to swim indefinitely without having to worry about holding your breath. This is used in a couple of later game sections, but it's not really utilized that heavily. You'll also unlock push and pull force abilities, a Jedi flip, which is just a fancy schmancy name for a double jump. You'll get a double bladed lightsaber later in the game, also learning how to split it in two so that you can basically dual wield. And you'll unlock climbing claws, which allow you to go straight up walls without having to do some sort of really slow free 
tree climbing. They sprinkle these upgrades all throughout the game to try and give you a constant little drip of new things to discover. But honestly, a lot of this stuff isn't used in previous levels as much as you would think it is. Usually there's one path that requires a double jump, or there's one path that relies on you being able to wall run, which you unlock super, super early, so it's not that useful. Or there's another place where you need to use the climbing claws to get up a ledge, but you use that, and then that one puzzle is done, and you're just done with that. It's really, really surprising how little there is here for you to engage with in terms of backtracking. Usually it's all tied up into stims, where again, you'll have more uses for the healing stim that you'll get from BD1. And occasionally there's some other collectibles that might be hidden in particular areas as well. But usually the difficult to reach areas are hiding one of these stim upgrades. And there's one, maybe two in each of the broader planets that you'll be discovering and exploring. I don't know, all told, I like the Metroidvania style of level design, but it feels as though in most of these levels, there's one place that is gated that you need to return to later. There's not multiple, there's not like interweaving level design or anything that's super complex or cool. It's just like, oh, there's there's one door you can't get through yet. Okay, we'll come back later and that's it. It's, it's limited. Also, I know I've mentioned it a couple of times, but I put a bullet point in the script. I have to bring it up directly. The weird running animation is super distracting early on. Eventually you sort of tune it out, but dear God, it looks so stupid. I really don't know what could have caused this. I don't know if this is like that the motion capture was recorded on a guy that's like 10 feet tall and then when they shrunk it down into cal's body shape it caused distortions in the running animation or something but whatever it is i'm not the only one that thinks his running animation looks super super stupid and apparently they haven't fixed it for the sequel i understand it's an animation set it's not that easy to just change it i get that but this looks so stupid <laughs> It's like actually distracting. But setting that aside, after we've completed the basic tutorial section of the game, we've understood how the basics of combat exploration and even some of the narrative works, we transport to Zepho and the game totally changes here. Up to this point, we've had a very linear, very lean narrative action adventure experience with tons of big set pieces, cool things that happen on screen, carefully acted scenes, and then we go to Zepho and everything shifts dramatically. Now, the game feels much more like your typical Soulsborne title, where you'll go out, you'll try to fight enemies, and if you get jumped and killed, you get transported back to the last side of grace that you rested at, and then you move on and you try to find back where you died, and the enemy that killed you will be glowing, and they hold all of your souls or blood echoes whatever you want to call them that you need to upgrade and purchase things so you have to go and then kill that person to get those back and you continue killing and fighting more enemies as you work your way through to the next place of meditation so that you can then have that checkpoint and while i don't have a problem with that it's just totally different from what we've been doing for the first hour to hour and a half of the game it's why my time with jedi fallen order was so much of a roller coaster because i went from thinking this is like Uncharted 2, but in Star Wars, I'm all in. That's awesome. And then it shifted and it's like, oh, so this is like Dark Souls Star Wars. I, like, I'm about it. I'm cool with that. But this isn't what I thought we had going on. But okay, okay, we'll go with it. Interesting. And then later on it shifts and it's like a puzzle game. It, it feels like 
they had a few things that they wanted to do, but in Jedi Fallen Order, none of it really interweaves perfectly. It feels like they have a very obsessive attitude in certain levels, where Zepho is all about combat and your typical Soulsborne style of gameplay, where there are routes that you need to go back through, there are some Metroidvania elements to it, but in general, it's a Soulsborne level in a Star Wars universe. And then later levels like Dothamir, which is like a very dark and gritty, scary world that you can go to. That one is almost entirely built up of platforming and broader exploration, backtracking, finding different paths to go through. Kashyyyk is another level that is heavily built around exploration, free climbing, that type of thing. And then when you return back to Zepho later in the game, it turns back into a puzzle world. And so it's just all over the place. It feels like sometimes they're fully committed to the Soulsborne inspiration. And then other times they're doing this weird puzzle stuff to pad out gameplay time. And it's just all over the place. I honestly think it's why often I felt when I was playing Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order for this video, and even back in the day, I felt as though I was playing like three different games at the same time. And just every once in a while, it was like unplugging the controller from here and plugging it in over here and trying a different game that just totally focuses on different stuff. And paired into all of this is the fact that there are some things Jedi Fallen Order does pretty well. And there's other things that are just overly clunky. We're about to go into the combat in a little bit more detail. But one thing I want to touch on before that is just how the movement in general feels very, very clunky and stiff. There are a bunch of arena puzzles or platforming puzzles where you're expected to climb over here, jump over here, move over there, avoid this shot, do that, do this. And that's great and all, but when the movement of the character is not super responsive, when they don't do exactly what you want them to do, or when they just look freaking weird doing it because they have bizarre animations, it can often make those puzzles less fun than you would think they would be. And paired with this, because the puzzles also kill any sort of pace that the game was enjoying, it can make subsequent runs super, super tedious. Back in the day when I played this on my Xbox One X, I think it was, I had all sorts of bugs and glitches, as I mentioned before. And so I wanted to replay it just six months later on my brand new gaming PC that I had built. However, these puzzle sections totally killed that for me. It was extremely annoying to run into these puzzles that aren't difficult, they aren't tricky, they're just time consuming and tedious. And when a game feels tedious, it feels like it's wasting your time. It's very easy to just put down the controller and go play something else, which is what I inevitably did. And then as years and years passed, and now in 2023, I decided to replay the game once more, I've since forgotten a lot of those solutions to the puzzles and a lot of the movements and things you're expected to do. So I was able to go through them fresh, but I still found them tedious and more generally annoying. I don't think this is a controversial thing to say, but in my mind, if there is a mechanic or there's something in your game that players are expected to engage with for a good chunk of the runtime, if players hate it, that's not good. <laughs> I don't think this is controversial, but I think if you have something like Batman Arkham Knight and every time they're forced into the Batmobile to go and fight random tanks and stuff, if players dread that and want to just get through it, that's a problem. Players should always be interested in what they're doing, be excited for what the game is handing them to do next. And the moment that the player starts to go, oh, this again, you've lost them. 
That's a major problem. And hopefully in the sequel, they don't lean into this problem of just shoving tons and tons of puzzles in to kill the pace every time they start to get a stride going. But speaking of combat, there are four basic difficulty levels, story mode, Jedi Knight, Jedi Master, and Grandmaster, with the direct comparisons being story mode, easy, medium, and hard. When I first went through the game, I played on the recommended normal difficulty because that's usually what I do with reviews. I always try to play games in the same way and with the same options as most players. However, in this 2023 playthrough, I decided to go through on the hardest difficulty available. Jedi Grandmaster. And the reason I did this is because in my experience, playing on hard forces you to engage with every system and mechanic the game has because you'll need to. You need every tool at your disposal in order to deal with greater threats. When I played through the game on normal, I didn't find myself needing to really carefully play skill points in order to upgrade Cal's abilities uh, in a very particular way. I didn't feel the need to go and collect every stim upgrade or the additional canisters for additional stims as you play through. And that was simply because the game was easy enough that I didn't feel the need to do all of that. It's in the same way, as I've said, if you're going to play a game like The Witcher 3, it's really important that you go, and in my mind, play it on Death March. Because when you do that, you'll be forced effectively to use the oils, to go and craft your gear, to upgrade your gear constantly. And you'll actually find yourself engaging with every system in the game. Whereas playing on normal, you can pretty much avoid oils. You can avoid worrying too much about your gear scores at any given time. And you can just float through the game. Basically, if you want to really get to know a game, play it on hard. Now, each of these difficulty options are scaled based on three key factors, parry timing windows, incoming damage, and enemy aggression. The parry timing window is pretty self-explanatory. On easier difficulties, there's more time for you to try to parry an incoming attack. I don't know what the exact numbers are, but imagine if you have on the easiest mode, say, a quarter of a second to press the parry button in order to counter an attack from an enemy. On Jedi Grandmaster, it might be down to just a few frames. Incoming damage is also pretty self-explanatory with higher difficulties leading to enemies that can deal more damage to you. And the enemy aggression, as far as I can tell, directly has to do with how enemies treat you when you encounter them, especially in groups. On lower difficulties, you'll usually only have one enemy attacking you at a time and they each quietly wait their turn. This usually means that on the story mode difficulty, you only ever really have to worry about one stormtrooper shooting at you at a time, making it much easier to navigate a level, run around them, or take out each individual threat. Furthermore, for boss fights, it also seems to suggest that bosses will have fewer attack animations at their disposal, once again, making it easier to deal with them. On the contrary, on the Jedi Grandmaster difficulty, everybody will shoot at you the moment they see you, and they do not care if they're overlapping attacks with their peers. In addition, bosses also have increased damage and have access to their full suite of attack animations making it so you really have to be paying attention because they can swap out individual attack animations on every single attack. So you won't be seeing the same overhead throw that they've done for 10 times in a row now, but rather 10 individual different attacks keeping you on your toes. Now, I love this, and I was actually pleasantly surprised at how robust the combat can feel when you play on harder difficulties and you get acclimated to it. I still would not say it's anywhere near a game like Elden Ring or any of the Soulsborne titles. However, it's 
pretty good. Hitboxes aren't great. Sometimes it feels like you shouldn't have taken damage when you did. And even on the Jedi Grandmaster difficulty, it often feels as though parries are inconsistent in their timing in a very frustrating way. There are these guard guys with the purple weapons. I don't know what they're called, but they can suck every part of my Johnson. I cannot stand these guys. They are infuriating. And for some reason, I just can't get the timings down consistently on these guys. I'll be going through one level. I'll encounter one of them and I can parry everything he throws at me. And then I'll walk through a doorway into the next room. And all of a sudden I can't hit a single parry. I know I should just get good. I know, but I can't help but feel in my subjective anecdotal experience that something is just not super consistent here. I don't know if I'm the only one that experienced this, but I'm just here to report what I found. I'm here to tell my truth, guys, my story. <laughs> Now, to deal with these increased threats on higher difficulties, the game gives you a bunch of unlocks to help you progress. You get access to health upgrades, which, of course, as you would expect, increase your total health. You also have a force meter, which dictates how many force abilities you can use in a row. Certain upgrades to BD1 can also be used to refill this every time you use a stim to also refill your health, which is, as far as I'm concerned, probably the most useful upgrade that you can get in the entire game. It's called the power of friendship. It's three skill points. You get it later in the game and it is a godsend. You can also upgrade the stims through the skill tree in order to increase their efficacy, making it so it heals more health each and every time, something that is very, very important, especially as you upgrade Cal's max health. But almost certainly the most important thing to focus on when you're playing on the hardest difficulty are the additional stim charges. These are found in unique crates scattered throughout the world, usually hidden pretty well, as I mentioned earlier. And that's for good reason, because they want to make sure if you're playing the game on hard once again, you have to earn the right to finish the game on hard. And that means exploring every nook and cranny the game has to offer, which will in turn get you more XP that you can use to get more skill points that you can use to upgrade your version of Cal further and further, making the later game encounters, which are much more difficult, more tolerable. Playing through the game this time, in 2023 i found myself going to areas of the map and going around corners and finding mini bosses that at least i don't remember finding back in 2019 which is a very very good thing and once again this is why i often recommend that people play games on hard because you'll end up finding things you simply wouldn't have been pushed into finding on lower difficulties. Whereas playing on hard, you either go and find those cool things or you don't progress. It's pretty straightforward. The skill tree has three trunks, I guess you could say. I would say branches, but they call themselves the lightsaber tree, the force tree, and the survival tree. So I, I think calling them trunks is more accurate, I guess. The force tree, as you would expect, allows you to upgrade your force meter and force abilities. The lightsaber tree allows you to increase your melee damage and allows you to unlock some cool stuff such as lightsaber throws later in the game. Something that I thought was kind of cool, but I never found as useful as you would expect. Later upgrades like the one titled lightsaber mastery for three skill points is very, very necessary for late game encounters if you don't want to be pounding your head against a wall as it increases all lightsaber damage by a very significant amount. And then the survival tree is the most boring one. This basically increases Cal's maximum health in addition to skill points being redeemable for various other quality of life improvements, such as improved dodge and evades, or even to a skill called personalized stims for two skill points, which allows Cal to recover life, which increases the efficacy of stims. If you spend just a couple of minutes planning out how you're going to apply skill points and when, you can actually pretty comfortably min-max a build out 
for Cal in a very real way. I think most players will probably end up with a very similar Cal at the end of every single playthrough, just because there are some skills which are objectively better than others such as the aforementioned skill that allows you to refill your force meter with the stims. But setting that aside, I, I think it's fine. This game was never really sold as an action RPG where you're supposed to be able to play in totally different ways. And frankly, I'm just glad that there's stuff here for you to engage with thoughtfully. And if you want to take your version of Cal in a different direction and build him out in a really weird way, you can do that. But I guess if you're paying attention, you'll probably end up with the same version of Cal as everybody else. But with all that having been said, general combat is pretty satisfying as you explore levels and work your way through the story. Boss fights, on the other hand, as far as I'm concerned, are generally a letdown. Looking at a handful of them, we could point to the second sister. You fight her a handful of times, and while I excuse the first encounter that I think motivates your journey pretty well, the subsequent encounters are much more boring. You fight her in a second encounter, but with this you don't actually get to kill her. You just deal some damage and then she escapes, which leads you into a situation where you fight her once again at the very end of the game. The first encounter I think is there for narrative purposes. It's not really supposed to be a boss encounter in the same way as the second encounter is, but it does just start to feel a little bit much to have the same boss fight three times in the game, but you're only allowed to finish it in the third encounter. So I don't know, I just, I don't love that. I'll excuse the first encounter for narrative reasons, but the second and third, I, I'm just like, come on guys, could we not think of anything else? At the end of the jail sequence, there's the boss fight leading up to the encounter with the bounty hunter, where you fight waves and waves of lower level enemies. This one I also found incredibly annoying because the checkpoint system is also totally broken. If you die during this fight at all, you'll have to go back to the very beginning of the encounter, which in some cases, especially because enemy spawns can break sometimes, could lead to you losing as much as 10 minutes of gameplay time. I understand they took a lot of inspiration from Soulsborne titles in this game. I mean, just the meditation sites are clear enough evidence of that. However, it's very selective in when they choose to lean into it and when they don't. And in this case, they seem to lean into it. Oh, well, you got to get good. This boss encounter is really tough. It can take 10 minutes to fight through all the waves and then the boss fight. But in other boss fights, if it's multi-phase or if it's just a single phase, there are checkpoints all throughout the boss fight, so you don't have to redo all of it. It's very, very inconsistent, which is why this one feels so unfair in comparison to the others. There's also a bunch of reskinned mini-bosses all throughout the game, such as this rabid Jotaz, or Yotaz, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And as I said, this encounter is just a reskin. He's tough, he's tricky, he deals a ton of damage, sure, but he's the same enemy that is literally outside this room in the outer overworld area that you have to run past in order to get to this guy. Reskins can be okay, but eventually I have to call them out because they just come off as lazy. The Ninth Sister boss fight I actually found to be pretty interesting and fun. It doesn't overstay its welcome, and I think this is generally a pretty good fight. The Terran Malakos fight is actually probably my favorite boss fight. I just find this one really, really cool. There's a lot of interesting moves, and the set piece around you is also pretty interesting. And then there's the fight with Vader at the end. I mean, if you could even call it a fight, it lasts like 45 seconds, so I, I guess you probably could, but I wouldn't really count that as a boss fight. And speaking of that, the game just ends out of nowhere. Like you're just doing your thing. And then all of a sudden Vader shows up and then he kills the second sister. And then he just moves on and starts attacking you. And then the game's like over within 10 minutes. It's really, really weird. It comes out of nowhere. I didn't think the game was ending the first time I played it and I got there. It's just 
bizarre. But you know what? I think it sets up an interesting boss fight and stuff for the sequel. So I would guess we probably see Lord Vader once again in that second game that's coming very, very soon. But I guess we'll just have to wait and see. But all of this brings me to the central issue as far as I'm concerned with Jedi Fallen Order, which is scope. In general, the game feels very limited in what it was able to do. There's some really cool ideas here, but often it feels as though they sent off a few teams to build out different parts of it, and then they stitched the game together at the very end. This would explain why there's multiple levels that feel like they totally focus on combat, another level focuses entirely on exploration, and others focus entirely on free running and that type of thing. I think it also explains why the front of the game is so heavily loaded with high effort, high production value set pieces and encounters, and why towards the end of the game, they end up sending you back to multiple areas you've already visited because they simply ran out of development budget as the game's development went on. You have to remember, it's easy for us to say now that Respawn just has a blank check from EA, but Apex Legends kind of came out of nowhere in February of 2019 and was a huge success. And then only a few months later, they launched Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. So before that, most of Jedi Fallen Order was developed in the pre-Apex Legends days, the days after Titanfall 2, which was a commercial flop. There's good reason for EA to have given them a much tighter budget on the game than they probably could have used. But you know what is so great about all of this? The fact that this game had so few boss encounters that were really unique, so many reskinned enemies, levels reused, blah, blah, blah. That all is tied into scope and budgetary limitations. And you know who won't be having any sort of scope or budgetary limitations this time around? Yeah, Respawn, because Apex prints EA money. And Jedi Fallen Order was also tremendously well received despite those limitations. So this game that's coming out again in just about a week, Star Wars Jedi Survivor, I think could actually be the big budget version of this vision that we all were hoping we would get this time around. But it looks like we're going to get it this coming time around. I don't know if there were originally more levels planned for the game or more set pieces or boss encounters or what, and then they were later cut. I have no idea. I haven't talked to anybody that worked on the game. However, what I do know is that the game ends out of nowhere very abruptly, which seems unintentional. It seems like they probably did that as sort of a last minute thing when they were wrapping up production, trying to polish it. They probably cut some stuff and tried to tighten it. And my main reason for thinking that is because the game ends out of nowhere a lot of the time for a lot of players before they fully explored the rest of the worlds that are given to them, which is a big bummer because a lot of people will be playing the game, having a good time. They're going to go, oh, I remember I couldn't get up over that ledge. I needed the double jump. I'm going to go do that. But after I take on this next mission and then the game's just over and they put the controller down and they're like, oh, well, well, the game's over and they move on and they never go and experience that stuff that I only experienced this time around playing the game on hard. And to be honest, there's a lot of customization here, not just customizing your lightsaber with different handles and hilts and colors and blah, 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 but also ponchos can be swapped out. BD-1 and your ship have different skins, and there's even 10 different seeds for plants that you can use to grow plants in your terrarium on the ship. I'll be honest, this one didn't appeal to me as much. I don't really like scouring levels without guides for like one little object in them just for the sake of being a completionist um i'm more of a guide guy for those types of activities and at that point if i'm just looking up in a guide where to find seeds in random levels so i can have a check mark next to this game in my mind like i don't i personally don't get it i understand there's collectathon people that love this kind of thing 
I'm just not one of those people. But the point is there's a lot here for those people who do want to go through and explore every nook and cranny of this game. And unfortunately, the game's abrupt end often can cause people to miss out on that opportunity. But all told, I've really, really enjoyed going back to Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order. I think the game in general is pretty good. The puzzles do get boring and bland. The combat does feel like it could use some tightening up. If the levels were bigger and the Metroidvania elements were more pronounced, I think that would be awesome. And if they could find a way to blend all of these different sub-genres of games into one cohesive vision, I think we could have a real winner on our hands. Unfortunately, Jedi Fallen Order often feels as though it's a bunch of little games kind of stitched together and it doesn't come together super coherently. But when you do get a taste of these different pieces of the puzzle connecting, it's awesome. It's just unfortunate that the limited scope seems to have limited what they could actually do in terms of production value and huge set pieces and encounters to really flex the gameplay systems that they built here. But the next game likely will be able to do all of that. Because most of my issues with Star Wars Jedi Fallen Order are tied up into budgetary constraints, into scheduling and production costs and things like that, which held them back from doing what they really wanted to do. But this time around, I'm guessing that they've been allowed to do pretty much everything they wanted to do, and I am here for it. As for things that I'm hoping to see in Star Wars Jedi Survivor, again, more boss variety, more enemy variety, more generally. If they're going to take inspiration from Uncharted 2 and those linear narrative games, I want them to continue that through the whole game. Instead of just having a really high effort, crazy high polish introductory hour, I would like them to take that and spread it through the entire game. And if they can do that, I'm on board. But you know what? Time will tell. I am here for it. I'm very, very interested. And if you are interested in Star Wars Jedi Survivor, let me know in the comment section below. My goal is to review the game as well, and we're going to talk about it. I'm at a wedding out of state right now when you're seeing this video go live, so I won't be streaming today. However, I will be back next week, and I will be streaming again after that. So come by Luke Stevens Live, hang out with me, chill, ask me questions, whatever. I might be able to answer them. It's a good time. And of course, make sure to like the video and subscribe if you enjoyed it to get notified of new videos when they go up. And once again, you get access to videos like this early if you're a member over on Luke Stevens Live. Go check it out. If you have the ability to join, I'd love to have you. If you don't have the ability to join, just subscribe over there and you get tons of content. Pretty much any video that doesn't fit on this channel goes up over there. But with that, I'll see you over there. Thanks for watching. I love you all. Hugs and kisses. Bye-bye.